Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Slabcast. This is episode 14 of our coverage of the 2023-24 season. I'm your host, Gage, as usual, and the Premier League has had its first official double game week, which means we've got double the action to bring to you this evening. I'll waste no time in offering greetings to the fellas. So we'll start first with Reese, who it seems is this week's victim of a random mystery illness. <laughs> so Reese, how are you? How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm I'm okay right now. I got some steroids, some drugs going on, making me feel better. But yeah, I've definitely been better, but it's uh, it's not terrible. I think it's just a cold. Uh, Ethan is here as well. Hello, Ethan. Hello, Gage. And Josh. Josh, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm feeling pretty good. I'm back to full fitness after my own bout with a random mystery illness. And I'm back in high spirits now that Spurs have actually won a football match for the first time since... October. So uh, I'm in such high spirits, actually, that I'm now going to turn it over to Josh for question of the day. So last week, for this week, I'm going to turn it back to how it was earlier in the season. We're going back to the football related questions. What is your favorite jersey that your club has donned since you've been a fan? Mm. Good one. That is a good one. Uh, I don't know if it, it's my favorite right now, but I was particularly excited when the banana kit came out. I think that was 1920 or something like that. Um, I think that's a really nice looking kit. Um, I also, we had this black and black one with like pink outlines and it was collared. I'm a big fan of that one. I think that was, um, I want to say 16, 17, maybe the following year actually. Uh, and then our new home kits. I'm giving you three. I'm cheating. But yeah, I like our current home kit too. Do you like the new, the, like the ones y'all wore this weekend? I'm tr- the the like yellow one. Yeah, I definitely think it looks better in person, but uh, I don't I don't love it. I don't hate it as much as I initially did, but I think it's it's a worse version of the banana kit. The yeah. topographic map gambit. Yeah, yeah. It's weird to watch. Like it does not feel great on the eyes. Yeah, I don't love it, but so mine. mine... Actually... Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> mine is from 2019-2020 season. Uh, it's our away kit. I actually pulled up a picture of it. It's the black one that's got the, like the red and blue stripes on the side and in the middle. Uh, I just thought it looked really clean. I thought our kit started looking great when we turned to Puma from Macron, but now we're back to Macron. So, uh, yeah, it's unfortunate, but yeah, that's my favorite. I think design-wise, my favorite actually might be the one I'm wearing right now, which is very topical of you to ask while I'm wearing it. I think I really like the sleek navy with the collar and the... I don't love this thing. I don't really know what this is, but if that wasn't there, I think it would be a 10 out of 10 kit. The fact that it is there, I think it's 9 out of 10 probably. In terms of like memory and application, now that Ethan pulled up a picture, I am doing the same. So it's this one. And that picture should tell you exactly why it's that one. Um, that's definitely the the kit that I have the fondest memories of. And the fact that I have Sun on the back of that one helps too, because uh, he had some great memories in that kit as well, especially in the Champions League game against Man City where he scored two goals. So that's definitely up there for me in terms of uh, kit preferences. Mine is the 15th. Well, mine from like memory, like you're – 
your one which you just showed is the 15 16 one i'm not going to show it because it's like a very simple kit but the texturing on it was really nice there was you the texture made like the blue a little bit darker in certain spots and shinier in other spots which i really like but i think my favorite because i don't have it sadly but it's the pink one with like the with when it the 1920 season because the Diaz made them for the World Cup, the, the like Germany, like black, like chevrons from like the 19 something, 19 or World Cup in the 80s or the 90s. Oh, that that jersey's crazy. I wish I had one. That thing's a- you mean the one that we told you to buy approximately 500 million times when it was in circulation? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's funny that you said that because I was literally going to bring that up if that one wasn't your like honorable mission or whatever. That one is absolutely insane. Thank you very much for that uh, expedition through our memories of jerseys, Josh. It was very enlightening. So we'll now move along to our mystery segment for the week, which is not so much of a mystery after all. I've decided to call it Midweek Madness, or actually I think Ethan came up with that. Uh, And it's really just to look back at all the action from the midweek games that have gone by because – This is the first time that we've had to review a full game week in the midweek and one on the weekend. So business as usual for us. And it was slightly business as unusual for Arsenal, who were involved in, I think, is an unexpected seven goal thriller with um, Luton. So, (laughs) Reese, I'll let you take it away here. I think from your perspective, this may not have been the most enjoyable watch at certain points during the games. But for a neutral, uh, it was absolutely thrilling stuff. So. Yeah, it really should have been a routine game, but a really poor performance from David Rea. I think I'm okay with the first goal. I think the second and third goals from Luton um, should have been saved. Simple as that. Um, <clears throat> you know, credit to Luton. They really were pushing for the win. And I think a special shout out to Ross Barkley as well, who had a phenomenal game. Um, but it really shouldn't have been as close as it was. I think considering the fact that David Raya once again played uh, this past weekend, I think he um, owes the entire squad about a million dollars as a gift because um, I would have dropped them. I don't really, I think had we lost, he probably would have been dropped. Um, but, you know, this kind of goes into that never die mentality. Just keep pushing, keep pushing. Um, obviously I think the statistic is that we have the most um, stoppage time winners, not, not just stoppage time goals, stoppage time winners, um in the past year or so um and it's just because i think we're able to really hold focus throughout the full 90 um and it gives us some some late opportunities um and yeah i mean rice once again getting a last minute winner i think it's just great to see he i've been so impressed by him um definite uh yeah i would say definite player of of the season for us um arsenal's player of the season currently um but you know in the midfield i thought Havertz. i thought this was his best game actually so far um and i've been really impressed with him uh over the past few weeks so i'm really happy i think he's probably now you know 80 or 90 percent integrated into this system and I'm, I'm really happy with how that's going um as far as refereeing because i have to talk about it every game um, I think refereeing was generally okay. There was a few decisions slash non-decisions I did want to bring up. Um, one being a challenge on Sokka and another being like a shirt pull on Gabrielle. As isolated incidents, I'm actually okay with what the decision was, which was no pin on both. 
However, there's just been some cases previous this season, especially with that Gabrielle one. I mean, we saw it with um, it, basically the exact same um, type of play from City. It was it was when I believe Holland uh, shirt was pulled in the box off the corner, uh, something like that. And maybe it was Rodri. I don't remember who it was, but um, somebody just kind of had their shirt pulled um, and it was instantly given as a pen. Um, not the case in this game. Maybe they're maybe they decided that they didn't like the original decision, but it's just frustrating to see um, lack of consistency there. Um, I also wanted to bring up a key viewer challenge because I've seen that kind of floating around on Twitter uh, from Gage. Uh, you preempted me. <laughs> I did preempt you. Um, did uh, my question to you and to everyone who's talking about this is: Did you watch the full clip, or was it just the the screenshot? I saw it in the screenshot lifetime. looks bad. I, yeah, I saw it in live time, but it looks, I mean, even in live time, it looks a lot like the Romero challenge on Cole Palmer. Because in live time, the Romero one didn't even get given as a red card because it doesn't look that bad. But then when you see the freeze frame and the slowdown of it, it's a yeah. red. So I, I would say, I think the it's valid to have that. I think for sure it, it looks bad. Um I would say the key difference is who initiates the contact in this scenario, because in the Romero one, although he gets ball, he is the one initiating contact. And in the Kivior challenge, it's actually not a challenge. It was a shot, which he wouldn't have made contact, except for the fact that Townsend went in for a challenge. So he himself is initiating the challenge, which I think is the key difference, um, which, you know, it's it's kind of hard to differentiate because uh, it, it still looks pretty bad, but it would it would kind of be the equivalent of like someone getting kicked in the face, but if they were like bending over really, really far and it's like you kind of put yourself in that scenario where it wouldn't have happened in the first place. Um, that's that's my take on it, but I definitely think there's um, an argument to be had for sure. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up was Arteta receiving a yellow card for celebrating the 97th minute winner. Um, I didn't even think it was that egregious of a celebration. I think I'm okay with him receiving a yellow, uh, except literally no one else is receiving similar yellows. I mean, Deserby ran onto the pitch a couple weeks ago um, while the game was still going on because they scored a winner and he didn't receive a yellow, which I think is unbelievable. Um, and this caused a suspension for the Villa game. Uh, we saw Pep in the, uh, who, I don't even know who they played. Um, whoever they played this weekend. Luton. Like, it was Luton again. Yeah. Celebrating at the other team's um, technical area, like doing some gesture at them, um, which he did not receive yellow for. So I just think uh, I'm not surprised. I think um, Arteta has definitely given, he has placed a target on himself, which is, which is expected. Um, it's just annoying. So uh, and I think they knew it was coming to you can actually see in the clip he starts celebrating and immediately I think it's Carlos Cuesta is like like tries to stop him from celebrating because they knew I mean they're they're looking for an excuse to give him a yellow card and, and a suspension um, but yeah I think that's all my thoughts on that game kind of rambled for a bit but I actually didn't know that Arteta received a yellow for celebrating I think that's hilarious um, yeah I, I agree that I think it's insane that they actually followed through with that given the fact that it's pretty much unprecedented to do that for a manager <laughs> but it is kind of hilarious that it happened to be Arteta yeah um well we will move along now to 
what ultimately was a 2-0 loss to, for Crystal Palace against Bournemouth, but I know that most of Ethan's talking points revolve not around this game, but more about the state of affairs at Crystal Palace in general. So, Ethan, uh, you have the floor here. Thank you, thank you. So, you know, I'm obviously not going to talk about the game because same old stuff, more injuries, Ward looked like crap, didn't look up for it. So, typical, typical Palace performance, but... Uh, this game really affected me, and I'll say that because literally as soon as the second goal went in for Bournemouth, I was an emotional mess. Uh, you know, when I first became a Palace fan, um, coming up around 10 years now, uh, I know that I didn't sign up to be winning games every week and stuff like that, but, uh, and I know I wasn't there uh, when we were doing a lot worse, like in the championship, but, um, you know, I stuck through it, and I've encountered many, you know, difficult results over the years and usually I can put it aside and be like you know we'll get better and have better reason for it but uh all the palace fans would agree with me right now and saying that there's just genuinely nothing to be excited about anymore with uh, our team because you know every week it, it's looking like we're getting a new injury and the manager doesn't look up for it the players don't look up for it you know we we plan all these things but they don't end up coming to fruition it just happens every season where we encounter a span of bad games. And I know that those things happen, but it generally, you know, we usually don't have a good span uh, of results and, you know, good feelings about the club. So, yeah, it's just, it's unfortunate uh, to deal with because it, you know, it's something that you look forward to at the end of the week is your team playing, but, you know, I just, it's getting a lot to handle. And I know I might, you know, tweet like, oh, falling out of love with the club. I will still, you know, watch every week. And, you know, I even hesitated to get up at 6.30 to watch Liverpool play uh, at Sellers because of what happened last time we played them at home at 6.30, which was the 7-0. So it's just a big mess right now. And it's it's it sucks to deal with it because, you know, the, it seems like, you know, the chairman and our owners, you know, they really want us to do well, but it feels like it's just talk right now because, you know, not bringing in a, a new manager to try something out and, we're dealing with these injuries because the manager doesn't even want to use the players that we have signed. And, you know, it's the stuff, the little things like that, that, you know, get us really mad. Cause it's like, you know, we're dealing with this injury crisis right now, but we're not taking the measures to, you know, avoid it. Like playing our, our, uh, like our youth Academy, which we put so much effort and money into, or even seeking alternatives like Luton literally signed palace, you know, who was great at Palace Andros Townsend like weeks after uh, the game started in uh, August so I mean that's something we need because uh, you know Elise was going to be out we're not playing Franza it just seems like we're not you know trying anymore and it you know I usually don't like I said I usually you know avoid feeling like this I'm like oh we'll be better but it's starting to feel like the end for us you know with all the teams around us starting to feel better you know Everton reacting better after the the point deduction and Bournemouth doing better. Luton actually putting up a good performance against uh, City, even though they lost and then Sheffield getting a win. It's just like, you know, I don't, I just don't feel confident anymore. And it's getting to the point where we're all, all the fans are the only thing keeping us uh, positive at the moment. There's nothing else to be excited for. So yeah, it's a pretty sucky time to be a Palace fan. The big negative too, I think is that because of the, Injuries, obviously the injuries are bad because they impact results. But I think the second reason they're bad is because they give the board an excuse to not sack Roy. Because yeah. I think it's no secret Roy is old and he 
plays an old uninspiring style of football and sometimes it's good at getting some points here and there but i i just don't really think it has a place in the prim especially right now i think generally even the worst teams are playing more exciting football um and because of this it's like y'all will lose a game you'll lose at home to bournemouth which is definitely a game you'd be looking to pick up points and roy kind of gets off the hook because half your squad is injured um but you know there's other teams with injuries that are still able to pull results um key in point tottenham and i know they have a, a much better squad but you know tactics do have an impact and they can they can help kind of bridge that gap when there's injuries so i think I think uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the board will see the light that Roy is not it. But I don't know. Yeah, the unfortunate thing is that you know we just haven't heard anything from the board at all. I mean, this there's two things that made me really upset, and the first one being the fact that we had planned to you know add more seats to Sawhurst a couple of years back. You know, there was that picture of it or is like a graphic design of what the stadium will look like after the upgrade and then recently i think it was maybe a week or two ago it there it came out that we were missing money for it like we didn't have enough money for it and i'm sitting there like why did we confirm this if we didn't have the money to spend on it and so it's like they're they're trying but they're also like just being negligent and just not even like considering these things and then the one that made me even more mad was the fact that after the Bournemouth game, Roy had the audacity to come out and say that the fans are spoiled. I don't know how we are spoiled. I mean, and it, the funny thing is that immediately after that, he said he shouldn't have said that, and then it was just heat at the moment. But it's like, he's done that so many times this season where he said something and then immediately apologized. So it's just, and I, I don't know what, what he's talking about being spoiled. I I can't even remember a time when we were spoiled, so... It's just so frustrating and it feels, I think all the fans are together and the fact that we're struggling and it sucks, but it just seems like we're not going in a great direction. So anyway, that's all I had to say about that. The disappointing thing on Roy too, is it, it seems like it's one of those cases that we've talked about before in other situations where it feels like a matter of time. Like it doesn't feel like, I don't think anyone, including the board would tell you that Roy is the long-term vision for the club. Right. So it feels like a matter of time before he's dismissed or before his contract runs out and he's let go. So any time you spend between now and then is essentially just wasted time because the yeah. club is directionless. And it seems like if you could at least get in a manager who has a plan, maybe you continue to lose games, but at least you see the vision or you see the progress. But right now it just feels directionless. So, right. And then, Last thing is that just it, I don't see it getting any better anytime soon. I mean, we've literally got Manchester City next week, uh, and then we got Brighton, our rivals, but they're going to whip our ass because they're doing a lot better than we are over the years. Then we got Chelsea, who's been struggling, but I feel like Chelsea always have our number anyway, and then Brentford and Arsenal. And so after that, we've got Sheffield United, which is January or 30th. So, you know, <laughs> there might be another month of just this – depression football that all the all the palace fans are dealing with so you know it's just i don't realistically seeing us doing any better until then so yeah. i'd say it's a good thing this season that the bottom three are so much worse than the rest of the bottom half of the club i think if you all were playing like this like the last two or three seasons i think it would be a much grimmer time 
but I think it is advantageous that y'all at this season the bottom the the bottom of the barrel is very 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 bad, especially in comparison to the last two years. I mean, I was saying that for a little bit, but we got beat by Luton. Uh, I mean, Sheffield got a new manager in. Uh, Burnley finally won a game, and um, I don't think they're gonna do a lot better than that. But you know, it just doesn't feel very good at the moment. But I, yeah, I was think that was my mindset for the longest time, but now I'm getting worried. All right, let's move along to a fixture that highlights two aspects of life for Reese at the moment, and I'll explain what that means momentarily so last week we talked about what is scott mctominay's role in the man united midfield and restated that it's to score goals which he did twice in this game against chelsea to secure the victory uh but alternatively some events that occurred during and around the time frame of this game included eric ten Hag winning manager of the month Alejandro Garnacho winning goal of the month and probably goal of the season and Harold J. Maguire winning player of the month for November. Uh, so Reese was in the bin momentarily with that and this result against Chelsea. So Reese, how do you feel? <laughs> Told yeah, the press I mean, conference on your feelings. Yeah. Right then I was feeling like a fraud. Um, luckily, I mean, we'll get onto it later, but the, the weekend game made me feel a lot better, but I think that I think Ten Hag winning manager of the month is just fake. Like, who did they even play? I don't even. I mean, I feel I, I said it before, but it was that stretch of time where they were just like winning one nil over and over again against random teams. But yeah, I'm pulling up their November fixture. I think uh, Harry Maguire was improved. I think player of the month is maybe um, charitable. Let's say I think it's a little bit of a pick me up after how mean everyone has been to him. <laughs> um uh and you know goal of the month sure that was a great goal but yeah McTominay scoring and it wins them this game I think is detrimental to the team because he start he will start every week and he started again on the weekend and it was an entirely different story um I mean why was my new what where is he gone he pl- had one appearance played phenomenally was their best player and then it was dropped immediately after yeah i don't understand the decision making on that one this okay november is a hilarious month for them in terms of fixtures because they played three games in the premier league three games and that's what earns them all these awards a one nil win against fulham a three nil win against everton and a 1-0 win against Luton. So they didn't concede a goal in the Premier League in the entire month of November. Now wait, it gets better. Let me tell you, there are other fixtures in November that were in other competitions. A 3-0 destruction job by Newcastle in the round of 16 in the EFL Cup. A 4-3 loss to Copenhagen in the Champions League group stage. And a 3-3 draw to Galatasaray in the Champions League group stage when they were leading 3-1. So... Yeah, it just seems a little bit fake. If you consider the fact that they were terrible in all other competitions, it is definitely a little bit fake. So. Yeah, I mean, I I just, especially in this game, like I think Chelsea were kind of bad as well. Um, I I don't think this game had any good chances generated from like actual good play. It was all from mistakes from the opposition. Like it was turnover city in this game. It was just turnover, turnover, turnover. That's where every chance was generated. And it wasn't even from like the press. It was just like players misplacing passes so um yeah and, and nico jackson continues to be unable to score a goal i mean <clears throat> as a premier league hat trick and it is i still cannot believe that 
Like I, I would bet money for him not to score at this point. Yeah, it was a Premier League hat trick against nine man Spurs. Yeah, when they're playing, who were playing they're... on the halfway line. <laughs> yeah, it's like, come on, man. Yeah, I, I think both these teams were really bad in this game, and McTominay scoring is good in the short term. I think bad in the long term. I think uh, the fact that both teams were bad in this game is is sort of backed up or or expedited by the fact that they both w- lost in scoreless fashion in the subsequent game, which we will, of course, review momentarily. I did want to point out something, by the way. Um, in this game against Man United, Chelsea, who have spent Elon Musk's net worth on players, fielded this bench. Georgia Petrovic, backup keeper, okay. Benoit Badiashile and Reese James, who are both first-team players. Then, Ian Motson. Alfie Gilchrist, Leo Castledean, Armando Broya, David Souza, and Alex Matos. This is a Premier League bench from a team that has spent more on their players than Elon Musk has to get to Mars. Like, I just cannot believe how thin their squad is somehow when they're bringing in this many players. And yes, I understand they have injuries. So does every team in the league. But most teams in the league don't have a bench that looks like this. Um, Hotch went I, on the record after the weekend's game to say that he wants to bring in a couple more players in January. Of course he does. Of course he does. They just they can never get enough. They're like the hungry, hungry hippos of the Premier League. It's like greed personified. It's unbelievable. Uh, that that's really all. And uh, a shout out to uh, Reese's favorite account on Twitter, Transfer Checker, who continues to yes. double down on the fact that Chelsea have spent all this money. They're this super club, this absolute behemoth of the game, and they're still in 12th position behind little old Brentford, little old Fulham, their West Ham rivals or West Ham, their West London rivals. Um, So yeah, incredible stuff to see Chelsea in the bin, incredible stuff to see United in the bin after what was such a highlight week for them winning all these awards and and beating Chelsea. So yeah, well, uh, unless we have any other thoughts on that match, we'll leave that one behind more of a banter banter moment. Uh, than any than actual analysis really so uh speaking of west ham which i had on the brain because i was working on this segue and and one never really came to me the final match of the midweek that we're going to review don't worry aston villa fans we'll get to you uh is spurs dropping uh another game a two-to-one defeat at home against west ham um one which I initially was extremely frustrated about, and I do believe it was our worst performance out of the five that we, I want to say lost, but we drew with City in there. So out of the five that we didn't win over the course of the, you know, since the the Chelsea disaster, I think it was our worst performance as a whole. But even in such a performance as bad as that, I find positive things that we can take away. Namely, the fact where, Christian Romero's back in the side, immediately gets a goal. He's fired up, um, brings a lot of a level of solidity to the back line. Yeah, we conceded two goals. The first one was um just simply bad luck, really. Um, it's it's a blocked shot that takes several deflections and squeezes right out to, to Jared Bowen on the line. And then the second one is is a hospital pass uh from Udogi, which ends up in the back of his own net, unfortunately, after some some more shenanigans by West Ham being unable to finish. Um, the first shot saved by Vicario, the second shot off the inside of the post, the third shot finally uh, <laughs> found its way into the back of the net. 
of course, James Ward-Prowse, who seems to score against Spurs every time he plays against them, uh, which is extremely frustrating. But from the Spurs perspective, anyway, one of the things I wanted to point out, first of all, is the fact that I have officially decided that I do not want to see Pierre-Emil Hoybier start games for Spurs anymore in this system. I think he's been an excellent servant to the club. He, especially under Mourinho and Conte, was the kind of perfect workmanlike midfield general that we needed. Someone who can put in tackles, who can graft, who can disrupt play. And even though he doesn't get credit for it so often, one of the better passers in the team in terms of his range of passing and his ability to play those passes, his decision-making in terms of when slash if he's going to play those passes is another matter entirely. I think... He is just simply not on the wavelength with everyone else as far as the system is concerned. The idea with the Postacoglu system is one and two touch passing, quick movement, quick decision making, lots of incisive runs, things like that. Hoybier just does not fit the bill in that regard. Uh, he Every time he gets the ball, he takes too many touches, takes too long to decide what he's going to do. What he ends up doing is usually a sideways or backwards pass. I mean, he's a great recycler of possession, but the thing is Spurs greatest asset is the fact that they can take teams by surprise with their fast ball movement, quick turnovers, snappy passing, catching teams out. Um, and Hoybier just, just does not fit those characteristics of, of a team. So I think he's an excellent player to have on the bench to bring in. If you need to close out a game, he's someone who can put in a shift defensively, as we saw. I mean, he even played center back <laughs> for a time in the Chelsea game. Um, he's a player who, you know, loves a tackle. He's a bit of a shithouse. He's kind of a wind-up merchant. Like, he knows – he's very professional in the sense of he can wind down games very well. But as far as him starting and being a difference maker in the squad, I think the time has just simply come for him to be excised from that position. Um, and especially to the fact that it comes at the expense of having to play Kulisevsky out wide, which he's experienced a renaissance in terms of – playing in the midfield, taking over for the Madison role in this creative environment. For me, I don't really want to see Kulisevsky starting out wide anymore. I think he suffers from a lot of the same symptoms that Hoivier suffers from in terms of he just slows the game down a lot when he gets on the ball. He's a very powerful runner, um, but the pace is simply not there. And I think a lot of the times he's so predictable that whenever he gets to the outside of a defensive line, you know, he's going to cut inside and try to swing one in from his left. And it's just so predictable. I think he does occasionally put in a cross with his right foot, but I just think he's a very predictable player. And I think he also suffers from indecision in the attacking areas. I think he's plagued by the idea of trying to make the intricate pass, the intricate decision. When sometimes I think Spurs have had huge amounts of success from just playing a ball into the danger area. It's not the prettiest thing in the world, but it gets results. Um, so I think someone like Brendan Johnson, who's a lot more direct uh, in his approach, I think is just far more suited to that position on the right side of midfield. That being said, I think Kulisevsky is actually an excellent deputy to James Madison in terms of his creative playmaking ability, his long passing, um, his threading the needle, and the fact that he's just such a physical presence in midfield. He's a absolute monstrosity of a human being in midfield just muscles everyone off um is able to control the ball really well 
And whenever he's not faced with the immediate decision of taking on a player one-on-one, if he has a few seconds to kind of pick out a pass or make a decision, I think that really plays into his skill set. So for the time being, I want to see him glued to the midfield areas of the team sheet rather than out wide. Uh, because for me, that just suits his skill set so much better uh, than than it to be out wide. And, and it suits the system for another thing. So, yeah, I do think he deserves a place in the team, though. So um, I'm not saying drop him at all costs. I'm more saying the fact that I think he just needs to take up that creative role from now on. So from a West Ham perspective, I think they played a horrible game of football. I think they were not good at all. Their quality was simply not there, um, but they came with a game plan and low block defending has been Tottenham's antithesis for most of the last decade. And I think they know that. And so credit to them for showing up with a plan and getting the job done. I think Spurs just continue to be unable to unlock low block defenses without a creative maestro in midfield. So the Christian Eriksons and James Madison's of this world, I think, in the last decade or so, it's been a consistent theme that without one of them to available to unlock the doors, if you will, a low block is just not going to be penetrated by Spurs for the most part, unless you get a goal like in this game uh, where Romero scores from a set piece. So that's sort of my take on the game. I think West Ham are gobshite, as I expressed on Twitter. I think they are no good, um, as is proved by the fact that they got decimated by Fulham, who have been pretty pathetic this season at the weekend. Um, yeah, I, I just simply do not think West Ham have the necessary quality, obviously not in danger of relegation or anything like that, but for me, they're just not a good side. So, all right, that will wrap up our proceedings. As far as the midweek reviews are concerned. Now we're going to move on to the weekend matches and I'm going to start off by seeing if Ethan wants to add anything to his uh, previous monologue about Crystal Palace as they did, as Ethan brought up earlier, suffer a, another defeat at the hands of Liverpool in the early fixture. So so uh, I think we responded a little bit better than I would have expected us to against Liverpool. I mean, we came out uh, you know, eager to get on the ball more and pin Liverpool back a few times. There's a few unfortunate uh, not goals as Allison is just a great keeper, but... Um, I thought we looked a lot better, but, you know, it, it kind of just went downhill uh, after Jordan Ayew got sent off for a second yellow. Um, I will say the refereeing was pretty poor in this game. I mean, we about had the same amount of fouls, but all, all we had like nine yellow cards and Liverpool had none or one or two. So it was very, very bad refereeing, but, you know, we just kind of dropped our heads as soon as Ayew went off. So just looked very not confident. And as soon as, IU uh, was off the field. They immediately scored after like a few seconds and, you know, just invited pressure for Harvey Elliott to come forward and score on the second one. So, you know, you, you can't help but, you know, you know, congratulate the guys on, you know, responding a little bit better, you know, at least getting a goal against Liverpool who are in first place right now. But, you know, you also have to be like, you know, we got to be able to see out these games and and at least get a point from them. So it seems that every time we you know, struggle in in a game and, you know, re or like something bad happens in a game, like a goal or something or a sending off, we just don't respond that well to it. So I, I really, it's like, I wish we were kind of doing a all or nothing. I know we wouldn't get it because we're Crystal Palace, but I would, I would want to know what Roy is saying to them at halftime. Yeah. Cause 
I mean, and y'all, y'all did look very well organized in dealing with uh, the pressures of playing against a team like Liverpool. And then, like you said, like every, every bit of energy was sucked out once the red card happened. Yeah. And I got to take my hat off to you for actually getting up and watching it. I was up at 4.45 because of the dog. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I figured you weren't up just for that game, but it was nice no, but I was to like... reach out and ask if I was good. I mean, I I was at the point where I was just like, I'm surprised I even woke up for this game. Uh, when Mateta scored a penalty, I was just like, okay. Like, I wasn't even that excited or anything like that. So it was kind of just numbness, but... Yeah, hopefully we can play like that against City and see out and get at least a point. I don't know. Yeah, I, I definitely think Liverpool get away with one here because I I thought y'all were the better side. I think the yes. sending off completely changes the game and the nature of the first yellow on IU is is a little questionable. And Roy actually spoke about it post game, which I I personally am happy to see because um, I've kind of been on this referee tirade like many people, but. I think uh, when Arteta did it, it's easy for me to agree, but he's very inflammatory. So for everyone else, it's kind of just laugh and point at our, at our misery. But when Roy does it, everyone likes Roy. So uh, it's easy to it's easy to get behind Roy, and I'm I'm happy more managers are um, talking about it a little bit more because that's how things are actually going to get fixed. Everyone loves Roy except us. <laughs> yeah. I knew that. Was, I knew that was yeah, coming. I meant I meant we love yeah, Roy. I, I, as know, a I know. I know. I know. This is funny. I had to make that obvious. I, you know, even though he took over Vieira's Palace at the end of the last season and ended up churning out a bunch of great results, I knew going into the new season that he, since he had the full time job, I was going to hate him again. So it is not a surprise. Well, we even but... stated many times at the end of last season that that was had to be a temporary option, and apparently the board didn't see it that way. Yeah. So no, no ambition at all. We're sticking with old dude. So. Yeah, I'm I'm still nervous about our upcoming games, but if we play like that and not have to deal with uh bad stuff like the red card and whatnot, then hopefully we'll be okay. But I'm not feeling too good about it. Uh as I stated earlier. Well, credit does have to be given to Liverpool, of course. Some dubious factors going into them getting the three points in this situation, but a seriously depleted squad, like I mean, it seems like we're saying that about everyone at this point, which maybe should be an indication to the Premier League that something needs to change in terms of how hard we're working the players and and the fact that we're offering them very little protection from injury at this stage. Um, But a very depleted squad, lots of youth academy players involved in the goals and in the game in general. Uh, It was a first Premier League start for center back Jarrell Kwanzaa, uh, who made a difference. He was brought off later in the game uh, for, for returning from injury, Ibrahima Konade. And then, of course, Harvey Elliott, another Youth Academy pro- uh, product who gets on the score sheet to to secure the win uh, in the 91st minute at the death. So, And that takes them top of the Premier League due to the fact that City have been faltering of late. It's their first win in five this weekend against Luton. And Arsenal, of course, dropped points at the weekend, which we'll come on to shortly. But, um, Reese, I'll come to you since Arsenal probably have the biggest stake in the title race at this time. We talked last week about the fact that Liverpool are legitimate title contenders, and I do still agree with that point. 
I do still get the sense that they maybe are missing one element that will take them all the way. And I can't quite pinpoint what that is, but Reese, I don't know how, what is your level of concern from an Arsenal perspective regarding how likely Liverpool are to be consistent title challengers? Yeah. I mean, I think Liverpool are fantastic right now. Um, I'm actually still more concerned about city to be completely honest, despite them being six points back now. Um, I think it goes into what I talked about um, on the last podcast that although Liverpool are playing really well right now, um, I think their defense just doesn't really look up to it. I, I think <clears throat> to win the league um, in the Premier League, it has to start from defense. You you have to have a good defense. Um, and I think Trent has looked phenomenal. I think actually if he was converted to an out and out eight, I think he might be one of the best in that position in the world. Um, I think he's lacking defensively. I think Van Dyke hasn't looked quite up to it. I think um, obviously they've had injuries in the other center back position. Um, Andy Robertson is injured. So yeah, I'm, I'm less concerned in that aspect because I think they're going to start dropping points. I think they could have easily dropped points in this game. Um, and I, I will say I, uh, we have Liverpool at Anfield um, in a couple of weeks, uh, not this next game, but the game after. I think that will be more of an indication. And I think they're always up for that game. So it'll be tough, but I think um, that will definitely be what I think is their hardest test so far this year. Because I think in terms of just the balance of the squad, we have less injuries for one. Two, I think I would say, I actually don't think, I think statistically we have the best defense in the league right now. I think we've conceded. I, I think we've actually conceded the m- same amount of goals as uh, as uh, Liverpool. But um, our what's the statistic? It's like X XGA. Yeah, our XGA is lower, and some of the goals were due to you know this poor performance from Raya on the weekend and stuff like that. So um, I think that'll be uh, a really big test for sure. Um, I think when their defense is back to health, back to full health, um, I still think Trent is a weak spot. Him coming into midfield um, leaves a gap there. Um, But, I mean, you could say the same thing for us with Sinchenko, so maybe I'm nitpicking a bit. But um, that's where I definitely think their their hole is, for sure. I do think they're going to have the easiest end of season, though, Kim. Like considering all competitions, saying they don't have Champions League, they're going to be in the Europa League, and I think City's lack of squad depth is playing into that a lot. Like I think the games at the weekend and the midweek game against Villa, both their squad depth played a massive part. They just looked exhausted, and really in both games, especially the first half against Luton, they looked very shaky. Against I know that's a different game, a different topic, but similar title race talk so from one conversation in terms of title race to another conversation in terms of the exact opposite we have man united who once again have just been smoked by a team who you know theoretically should be (laughs) a relatively run-of-the-mill fixture in bournemouth who have quietly turned things around really well under Andoni Areola when they were considering sacking him not too long ago, they decided to stick with their man and it's paying off at this exact moment. 
Um, a 3-0 victory for them on the day. Man United at home, another embarrassing loss for them at Old Trafford. I think Reese has a stat on deck about that, about the Ferguson era. Maybe I can't remember if it was you yeah, that pulled that me. off or not. But um, I don't remember the exact numbers. Maybe I'll pull it up. But uh, I know with this loss, they have lost more games at Old Trafford since uh, Sir Alex Ferguson's departure than they had under his entire tenure, which in terms of amount of games played, I think it's less than half. It um, is less than half. They Ferguson managed almost 500 games. games. Yeah, they played less than half home games since Fergie's departure. Um, and they've lost more home games since, which is just unbelievable. Onana was awful. Like, that second goal was absolutely terrible. He basically just stood there, waved his arms around, and fell backwards. He he dives like a pro club's keeper. <laughs> yeah it's like it's delayed i think he's not as bad as everyone dunks on him for i think this was a poor performance i do not think he's the meme goalkeeper that everyone seems to think he is his I think positioning I- is awful he is genuinely like for a man he this man should not be playing goalkeeper for manchester united it, he his positioning is terrible i mean even going he back cannot- to the full power goal for the chelsea game yeah. There's no power on that shot. It purely goes in because he sees Onana just following him and just leaves a big old gap on the right side of the goal. Like I, I, I will you go watch that clip. It's hilarious because when you really like take a look at it, like slow it down, Onana just moves. He's just following the ball. Yeah, his positioning, his diving is awful. Like he's just not a. He's just not good. <laughs> In it's his defense, in this game, he was playing behind three fullbacks and Harry Maguire. So I don't. He has a lot of work was... to do in terms of marshalling the defense. I'll say that. And I also think he's one of the but best keepers on the ball in the league. I, I know, but. They have Dominic Solanke going forward. Okay. I think he's. I think Solanke's. He's. He is. He is going. He's had a good run of form recently. Um, I think I, I actually do agree, Gage. I think Onana's not completely at fault, especially given the fact that once again, similar to the Chelsea game, United just, it's turnover land and they can't keep control of the ball. I think Bournemouth had a great press, but a lot of the turnovers were just completely unforced errors. Um, that, I mean, they just like can't keep a hold of the ball and, and they offer nothing going forward too. I mean, their best chances of the game were Harry Maguire, um, where they just they can't create anything, so they just cross the ball in from super deep, and Maguire is playing striker for some reason, and he gets. Like, I think there were times. Huge. There were times before the second goal happened that they did actually look good going forward. Like they actually had some pace on the ball, and were moving forward like very well. And but the Bournemouth defense is very situationally aware and played very very well and put themselves in positions where they weren't going to be put. Um, in one-on-one situations, they always had someone else going there. They slowed it up enough where the midfield could get back, which I think is really important. But, yeah, once that second goal happened, they looked awful. Maybe this is crazy, but I almost want to blame Ten Hag for the ten- turnovers. Uh, I think considering it's happening across games now, I feel like they are not tactically set up. They have not been given enough instruction 
in the buildup to hold on to the ball. Like I genuinely think they just haven't drilled that kind of stuff. Josh, are you kidding? Um, secondly, uh, sorry, that completely threw me off. It's not a great look. To, I, I, God, I don't even, I have so many points I wanted to say and they're all just, <laughs> they all just came to the fore. This exact you burped moment. super loud. Yeah. <laughs> what do you, what is the face <laughs> for? I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe it wasn't, I don't know. It sounded like you did. It absolutely a face. was. This is crazy. <laughs> um, one of the points I wanted to bring up was second to that is I don't know what they do in training all week. Like I would oh, love to be a fly on the, a fly on the pylon, if you will, at, at their training session and try to determine what exactly it is that Ten Hag is trying to establish in their tactical identity. Because once again, this is another scenario where I think it's just a matter of time. So make a change. I mean, they, they need to make a change. They got to make a change somewhere. I, I don't yeah. know. I mean, and Reese, you also mentioned last game that Minu was banished to the Shadow Realm. Once again, makes no appearance in the game. Not even a yeah. substitute appearance. Um, they're opting instead for Safian Amrabat, who I'm struggling to, to visualize having a positive contribution in a Man United shirt at this time. He is so, the only one who offers any bit of determination in the midfield or like the back half of the pitch. I will say that his determination is there. His skill level is not, but his determination is there. You know who else offered determination in the midfield? Kabi Mainu. Why is he not playing? Why is he not making an appearance? Yeah, um, yeah, strange stuff. And then, of course, it's also not a great look to have your 70 million pound uh, striker sitting on the bench in favor of Anthony Martial, who himself was banished to the Shadow Realm multiple times since he's been at Man United. They have um, decided after this game to not renew his contract and let him leave for free. <laughs> Immediately following <laughs> this game. That's the they actually terminated him. Yeah. No. They killed um, him. <laughs> I wanted to bring so, up um Bruno's yellow at the end of the game. Um, because this is just unbelievable to me. I don't know how he is the captain if he's behaving like this. He has decided to dodge the Liverpool test by receiving an unprovoked yellow for complaining to the referee after the game is concluded. Uh, and he gets suspended, which is just unbelievable. I mean. I don't know what's happening. Do they have Liverpool next week? Yes. They have Liverpool boy, oh boy. That's going to be a destruction job. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> the way I've been seeing it phrased is that we are going to see scorelines never seen before. Yeah, the, the question of the day is if if they get the doors blown off them early, if they get the doors blown off them by Bayern uh, tomorrow – and then they get dummied by Liverpool, surely yeah. this spells the end for Ten Hag. I cannot see a scenario. Yeah, I mean, those are tough happen. games, but if you just get completely clobbered and show no kind of fight, I think he's got to Clobbered. Clobbered, yeah, exactly. And then they're also facing the risk of fa- uh, finishing fourth in their Champions League group because the odds of them losing to Bayern by a large scoreline are high. And of course, Galatasaray and Copenhagen are playing each other, so someone's going to take points out of that. And there's a very real possibility that United could finish fourth in their Champions League group and crash is, out of Europe altogether. What is the scenario that has to happen? I don't actually know. Let me, let I me think, do some quick math. I think it can't end in a draw and United have to win. Uh, actually, if United lose, period, they finish fourth. Oh, okay. So, What happens if United draw? 
if to United draw, lose, I think it depends because if United draw and the other two, they would need Galatasaray or Copenhagen to lose by two or more goals because Man United are actually at a disadvantage in terms of goal difference. They've conceded the most goals in that group. They've It's been five games well, in the Champions League, and they've conceded 14 goals. Yeah, I mentioned last time, Onana um, has conceded the most out of any keeper in the Champions League, despite having the best um, goals prevented statistic in the, in the Prem. The only scenario where they go through is if they win – and Copenhagen and Galatasaray draw. That's the only scenario in which they go through. So if pretty which much anything else happens, to which is the most unlikely part of that, I would say. Yeah. So, yeah, it is not in their hands and they're playing Bayern. Uh, so not, not a good outlook for them. Let's scoot right along away from Man United, the banter club, and move on to a, two, a result that has implications in two manners, primarily because Aston Villa are on one of the most incredible runs of form uh, known to human history and Arsenal, who you would have to say were probably the better team on the balance of play, suffer a defeat that ends them, ends shit, sees them ending the weekend, not top of the table. That's what I was trying to get out. So Reese, I don't know if you want to start with Villa or if you want to start with Arsenal, but um, I'll start with Villa because I actually don't have that many good things to say about them for this game specifically, which is kind of why I wanted to bring up the City game. Um, we don't have to go in depth, but I just wanted to touch on it. Because yeah, yeah. I think Villa have been great. I think the first goal in this game shows it, especially. It's a really great, really well-worked goal. I think in the City game, um, they completely dominated the game. Um, Josh was saying City looked a bit tired, which I think is true, but I think I think they got ran ragged for the entire game. Um, oh yeah what I do think in the city game versus this game and I think actually Emmy Martinez said it best he referred to the city game as um, a domination from Villa and he referred to this game as surviving against us which I think is definitely true Um, I think credit to Unai Emery he has really turned around this this squad and they look phenomenal I do think the people trying to use that to Talk about Arsenal are participating in revisionist history because he was terrible at Arsenal, um, which doesn't, which is, it, it can be mutually exclusive to him being good at Aston Villa, which is, I know it's a crazy concept, but <laughs> he can both be bad at Arsenal and good at Villa. Um, but yeah, it was great. It was a really well-worked goal. I think largely as far as our performance, I'm happy with it because I do think we dominated this game um, following the goal. Um I want to say we deserve to win, but if you don't score, you can't win. Um, And that was our issue in this game. We just couldn't finish our chances. And we had multiple high quality chances, a couple from Odegaard, which he owned up to after the game. Um, Again, I have things to talk about with the referees, but at the end of the day, I don't necessarily think we lost this game because the refs, I think we have to finish our chances, especially because Many of the, the, the things I'm going to talk about with the refs are extremely marginal decisions. And at this point, considering the target Arteta has given himself, considering this and that and whatever, and this just the general standard of refereeing, we can't be counting on marginal decisions to win games. And I wanted to compare this to City, actually, because I talked about how 
they actually, I, f- I feel like they don't have very much controversy with the refs. And I think it's because they just win all their games. Um, so they don't have to count on those marginal decisions. So, and, and I think in this game, we finished our chances. I think it's three, one, maybe even four. I think it, it is a handy, it is a dominant victory if we're able to finish our chances and, and the referee discussion isn't even a thing. So we have to get to the point, especially being title contenders, where the referees are a non-issue, not because they're good, but because we're just better. Like we have to win our games without any without any assistance. Um, having said that, um, these decisions I wanted to bring up are more on the standard of, um, again, consistency, because in isolated incidents, I'm actually like, I'm not really that upset with some of these calls. The first one being um, the Sokka non-penalty where he, or sorry, uh, Gabriel Jesus, where he kind of gets kicked in the, in the calf, which in, an, in, in the isolated incident, I think, you know, you can argue there's not, a, there's not that much, or there's not enough strong contact for him to go down. He's embellishing this and that. The issue for me is that they not only have given it this season, they gave it four hours prior in the Crystal Palace Liverpool game. Mateta got a penalty for the exact same challenge. So some level of consistency would just be nice. <laughs> um, the second one was the non-red card from Diego Carlos. Uh, I mean, he just absolutely turns and elbows Inquietia in the face um, off the ball, which the referee, one, doesn't see, two, gives a yellow. I think because surely a linesman saw it and said he needed to give a yellow card for this. I don't know how this isn't being given as a red Um I mean, I, I guess this is one where it is consistent because it didn't happen to Bruno um, Gimaresh against us, but um, I think it's a red every day of the week. It looks really, it just looks bad. I don't really know what viewpoint they had to say this isn't a red card, despite maybe saying it's not clear and obvious because the ref didn't see it, which is crazy because this is supposed to intervene when the ref doesn't see things. Um, the, there was the a similar one. one- in the West, sorry, there's a similar one in the Spurs West Ham game where Dan Kulisevsky got elbowed in the face and broke his nose like he was wearing a mask in the next game because it broke his nose and it was given as a foul on Kulisevsky and not reevaluated. It's crazy. Yeah, I don't really understand this decision because it is one that has been consistent, but I think it's consistently wrong. Um, they need to start giving these because it's just completely dangerous. Um, the last one that I wanted to talk about, the, the Havertz disallowed goal, I'm I'm fine with it being disallowed. Um, it is unfortunate because, uh, not to bring up Palace again, but it's it's just a recent occurrence where a player scores immediately after it touching their hand and the goal stands, which I think this one was less egregious than that IU one um, against Tottenham. That one was just wrong, though. So. Which, which, is, which is what I wanted to say. In this my is opinion. one where it's not consistent. However, this is one where... For the Palace one, I even said, based on the rules, you're not allowed to score if it touches your hand at all. So I'm actually okay with it being disallowed. It's just unfortunate um, that they've cleaned up their act when it's us. Um, <laughs> the one thing I did want to talk about is that uh, the ball is kind of headed into Matty Cash's arm uh, in the buildup, which, <clears throat> again, when this happens, my immediate thought is, well, his arm's not really in a, in a weird position. He doesn't have time to react. Except the exact same thing happened to Saliba in the Chelsea game, and they gave it as a penalty. Um, so 
I, I would like some level of consistency between these calls. It seems like whenever there is a 50-50 call that we get, it's always going against us, which not to go super conspiracy theorist mode, but I think is partially because of what Oteta has talked about. I think he has given himself a little bit of a target and we just we just aren't given the benefit of the doubt. Because I think if that is given as a pen for handball, I don't think VAR overturns it. I think if Gabriel Jesus' challenge is given as a pen, I don't think VAR overturns it. I think if Diego Carlos gets a red card for that elbow, I don't think VAR overturns it. I think all of these were marginal enough that um, had we been given the benefit of the doubt, the the uh, on-field decision would have stood. So, um, Again, though, I think a lot of people think um, it is a common theme for Arsenal fans, especially to complain about the refs. I think we've dropped points this season in games where we haven't complained. I did want to bring that up. Uh, I mean, we dropped points against Lons, deserved loss, didn't complain about refs. We dropped points, you know, Fulham early on, didn't complain, stuff like that. I think there's plenty of instances. I think it maybe is tiring to hear because it kind of sounds like woe is me, um, which is why I did want to kind of reiterate that at this point, we just need to score. We need to finish our chances, and that's why we lost this game. But um, I will keep talking about the refs as long as they give me stuff to talk about because I hate them. <laughs> well, normally normally I'd be all over you for that, but I feel like this season of all seasons, it's especially important to – and I was kind of on the other side of this earlier in the season where I was thinking, all right, just shut up and get on with it. But I feel like I've kind of converted – You've you've converted me in terms of the fact that Everyone just needs to be a shithouse until it gets fixed. Yeah. Um, and I think I actually normally would ridicule this idea, but I kind of do buy into the fact that it's possible that they're giving 50-50 decisions against Arsenal because of the political entity that is Mikel Arteta. And yeah. I, I think it's also not impossible, like because there's this kind of tinfoil hat thing in, in the Spurs community that since the Liverpool game where we got – points awarded to us because of an erroneous decision that the refs have tried to backlog that by giving 50 fifties the other way against Spurs. I actually do buy into that narrative. I think because the fact that they have to come out and do, I've, I've talked about this so many times about the fact that the PGMOL is currently a political entity and that is incorrect. Like that is, that is not a correct state of being where the yeah. referees are, a faction in the premier league. Like, I don't think that's correct. So, but I do actually buy into the, the narrative that there may be some sort of I'm not going to say corruption, but I think it might be even subconscious decision-making by the referees that leads to this perceived effect of what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, even looking at the Arteta yellow card that he, he was suspended for this game, uh, which I think is, it's crazy that he received a yellow in the, in the previous match against Luton. Um, I think something too that will be very indicated in, in indicative of the political aspect of this is when Arteta's suspension for his statements is going to happen because he got charged ages ago and they have delayed his suspension and I can almost guarantee he will be suspended for Anfield. Uh, I think it has been delayed and that's what's going to happen um, because because he's appealing it. I don't think he appealed it. It seems I, mean, like I don't even know how he would, would just, it, but... I mean, I would. I mean, you just appeal it through like the sporting. I think he's talking about the suspension for Villa, but I mean, can't you appeal things like that anyway? 
No, no, Which I'm saying one? I think Josh is talking about the the yeah, yeah, yeah. suspension for Villa. I mean, yeah. you can appeal any decision. Oh, uh, he's talking about a second suspension, Josh. I'm talking about the oh. original. Yeah, the Villa one. It's already done. It's whatever. The one I'm talking about is when he um, post Newcastle said all that stuff, and then he got charged yeah, yeah, by yeah. PGMOL. That has just been sitting in the ether. I guess it is possible that he, that we challenged it, and that's why it's taking so long. But it is. It will be curious to, to for me to see if it comes against Liverpool, uh, just because I think that is that is dubious for sure, at least in my mind. And maybe that's just me being a doomer and hating on the refs and assuming they are corrupt. But I would I, imagine I not could be correct. But like that also wouldn't be advantageous for the game too, especially because Arsenal's back on the rise, and I don't think it's very advantageous. Because financially, for anyone politically, to... for PGMOL, yeah, it's this is what I mean. They're a punish faction. Arteta as hard as they can for publicly denouncing them so hard. Yeah, but then like even the PGMOL has like people that they are responsible to talk to, and who most likely would not be happy with a super club or not super a, a superstar of the English Premier League being back on the rise, but not being able to, you know. That's such like a money grab. Like, um, the uh, issue I get what you're saying. The issue though is that it's Arteta because he is inflammatory enough that, like I was saying with like Roy's statements versus the reaction to Roy's statements versus the reaction to Arteta's, if Arteta has to sit out Liverpool at Anfield, I can almost guarantee general consensus among the other teams in the league will just be, haha, I hate you, Mikel Arteta. Okay, but why would they do that to Arteta when Klopp has been equally as bad at many, 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 many points? You know what? Do you know the answer to that? Because Klopp has a Premier League title, and I actually think that's a serious thing. Like, I think Arteta is an easy target because he doesn't have clout yet. Like, he does have clout in terms of the fact that he's obviously spearheaded Arsenal's transformation into a good team again, whereas they've been languishing for the past few years. Klopp, I think, is, like, on another level. Like, he he has ascended to godhood, pretty much, in terms of Premier League managers. And yeah. I, I'm serious. Like, he really has. And I think – I also – I think there's this is twofold, Josh, because I agree with you in terms of the fact that financially they should – it's in the best interest of the game to preserve the sporting integrity and allow Arteta to be part of the match and create a good product on the field. However, I also think they're in the business of storylines more than they are in the business of – like, I think to them, creating a storyline is almost part of their product. So I think they don't hate this whole thing about, okay, dummy Arteta with a suspension because it creates a storyline. Then everyone's going to watch the Arsenal game because then Klopp's going to go ape shit and Arteta's going to go ape shit. And there's all this kind of posturing. But then on the flip side of that, you're talking about the higher ups who can intervene in PGMOL. Well, they haven't intervened in the fact that the referees are ruining their product up until now. So I don't know. Oh yeah, like... but like, even with some of the stuff that, <laughs> even with some of the stuff that Reese said, Reese said that like there were multiple times the things he complained about at the weekend. He was like, "I'm just annoyed that it they got fixed against us." So that there is some. I do think the rest have been genuinely very bad this season, but they have. There have been things that have been improved and been emphasized on. Perhaps, perhaps, and I think the reality is maybe for the rest of the season, we're going to be looking at it with whatever the opposite of rose tinted glasses are like, because we know they've been horrible this entire season. 
we're gonna it's like fart tinted glasses like we're looking yeah exactly we're looking through the fart tinted glasses at the referees so regardless of what they do it's like we we're looking for errors maybe yeah although i mean i'll i'll fully i'll be the first to admit this is extremely conspiracy theory mode for me um and i and i do have a bias against the refs because of how they have performed this year um and and yeah, I think you could be you could be right that maybe it's not as uh, devious. Yeah, not as devious as I am originally thinking. But it's it is hard for me to see it another way for sure. Let's uh, leave that game behind. Obviously, massive uh, shout outs to Aston Villa who are on an incredible run of form, beating Spurs, Arsenal, and City in their last four games, uh, which is incredible stuff. The draw, lone draw in there being to Bournemouth, who are also on the rise. So uh, good results for both clubs there all around. I want to just very briefly mention this game. I don't really have too much in terms of talking points, but um, Everton taking a 2-0 victory over Chelsea, who are shite. Let's talk about that. But for one thing, are like is Reese James made of paper mache? Is he made of clay? Is he made of anything whatever non-durable substance you can come up with. <laughs> I don't know, but he's better than Trent. He hasn't moved on from COVID and he's working from home. Def- yeah, he is. Yeah, exactly. And he actually is better defensively than Trent. Cause as Reese pointed out, he's available for five games a year. And those are their five wins every year. Yeah. The games that's that why, they, games that's why they talk about him being so important is because the games he plays is what keeps them from getting relegated because they're their only wins. <laughs> Um, on the flip side of that, speaking of teams that we probably were, you know, considering in the relegation fight, especially after the points deduction, are Everton the first team ever to benefit from a points deduction? Like this has got to be one of the most galvanizing impacts I've ever seen on a football club. And I think there is no better man to head a team with a point deduction than Sean Dyche. Yeah. Cause it's just I mean, siege mentality. Admittedly. I think it kind of went under the radar, but they had a decent start to the season as well. Yeah. Because if you actually look at it, if they did not have the 10-point deduction, they would only be like three or four points behind Newcastle, I think. No, yeah, they, they would, they'd they would be in 10th right now, uh, which is three points behind Newcastle and six seven points off the top five. So I just did some serious loophole math to just point out <laughs> where they were. But yeah, three points off Newcastle if they had didn't have the deduction. So, and it is worth pointing out. I actually didn't realize this, but it says this on the Premier League website under the table that the decision is currently under appeal. So it is possible that the deduction gets reversed. Um, at which point we're looking at a really good season for a club that I think all of us were pretty hard on. Maybe um, once again, due to the fact that we're looking at them through fart colored glasses, as we <laughs> mentioned about the referees, because I think we all feel similarly, similarly about Everton, but um Man, yeah, just kind of not not to make it about me, but I see I I crave the togetherness they have. Like, I don't think I think even if we did get a point deduction, which I don't we have no reason to. I think if Palace like endured a point deduction, we would just be like, it's so Jover. Like we would just like never get any points after that. Didn't you say Roy would come out and blame it on the fans? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I said Reece, that if y'all got a points deduction, that Roy would probably just die. <laughs> <laughs> he would pass away. Right. But no, they're they're definitely, you know, you know, I, I obviously they've got some decent players in their in their ranks, but I think a lot of 
their like performances right now are just based off of uh <laughs> based off of a uh, you know just being together uh during this you know like weird time with the point direction and everything you're laughing at reese josh because that's what i was laughing <laughs> <at>. <laughs> uh that was a little surprise for our viewers there um I wanted to, you know, not spend too long on the Spurs Newcastle game because I think I, I hit most of the major tactical talking points in the game against West Ham because I think we saw the flip side of it here. Hoybier not starting, Kulisevsky starting in midfield, making a huge difference running the show, um, that kind of thing. I did want to point out, and I'm bummed that Reese decided to walk away at this moment because this is a bit that he would appreciate. But uh, some people do no nut November. Spurs did no win November, uh, which was a very difficult thing to endure. Um, but we finally got back to winning ways in what I have dubbed El Medico, um, probably the, the two teams in the premier league with the worst injury record right now. Uh, Spurs are down to about 14 senior players, Newcastle, pretty much the same. Um, so we did see the reintroduction of Pat Matar Sar, who's been out for the last few games injured. And I actually think it made a huge difference to the balance of the midfield, because in recent weeks we've been subject to the likes of Lo Celso, Hoybier, Skip kind of rotating and becoming a an unknown mass of midfield players. I think reintroducing Sar into the midfield, he's just the cog that makes the machine turn, I think. Uh, he also, I think Basuma's performances are 100% correlated with Sar's presence in the midfield. I think without Sar, Basuma actually struggles to um, find an outlet or to focus on his individual role in the team. I think when SARS not there, he feels like he has to do both. And that ends up in him making mistakes, uh, the likes of which usually lead to goals, like the one uh, against city that led to the Grealish goal. So when SAR is in the team, I think it allows Basuma to uh, focus more on his specific role in terms of breaking the press, progressing the ball easily. SAR also just has, an insane amount of stamina. Um, the guy just runs infinitely. And I think that's a huge asset to have in the midfield, which we miss when he's not there. I think Lo Celso is industrious, but I wouldn't say covers nearly as much ground as Saar and Hoybier is immobile for the large parts when he's on the pitch. So I think Saar being in the mix really, really helps us regain ground in terms of the midfield numbers battle. Uh, I also wanted to point out that Kulisevsky's continued inclusion in the midfield, or rather his return there in this game, led to the advent of Brendan Johnson playing on the right, whereas in recent weeks he's been playing on the left, and I thought that was uh, a great addition. As I said earlier, he's just very direct. Uh, he nearly had a goal in this game. He had a shot that ricocheted off the inside of the post, very nearly went in. And of course, the, the major talking point of this is it's Richarlison's first start in quite some time. And that forced Sun out to the left, which I think we all thought was was not going to be the way forward for Spurs. And this game has proven that maybe that is an alternative. Um, Richarlison has his scoring touch. I thought, still thought that, you know, cer certain elements of his performance need work. I think his, he is very willing to make runs and throw his body around, but I think he's not always in the right position in terms of how he facilitates our buildup. And he did have a few chances. And I mean, I, th I think he easily could have had another goal or two in this game with some of the chances that he had. And um, 
but I'm pleased to see him get back on the score sheet. Uh, it, these are actually his first goals for Spurs when he's starting the game. Uh, his previous two came as involvements as a substitute. And um, they were also his first two goals at home uh, for Spurs in the Premier League, which, you know, 18 months into his tenure is probably not what we envisioned. And I think it's well documented how the struggles that he's had both on and off the pitch. But um, it's a starting point. It's a starting point. I think I was ready to give up on him before this game. And I think he's kind of proven that maybe he does deserve another run in the team. And I definitely think he's going to start against Forrest at the weekend. So um, also his first goals with his feet. Yeah. Lots of firsts for him. Actually, he previously only scored headers away as a substitute. So now he's added <laughs> other things to his repertoire. Um, but yeah, nice to see for Richarlison. I also wanted to point out that uh, destiny has his first goal for the club. Um, another element of what I'm talking about in terms of just getting balls into the danger area. Um, we had two goals from that situation where we drive to the byline and just cut a dangerous ball back into the area and see what happens. Um, and, and we had runners coming onto the end of them in this game in the form of uh, Udagi and then later Richarlison. Udagi. Udagi. And then uh, the final point that I had, and I'm sure Reese was going to bring this up if I didn't, was the Romero reverse tax. Uh, the fact that he had another challenge studs up on Callum Wilson in reckless fashion where he easily could have been sent off. I mean, that is a red card every day of the week, in my opinion, studs down the Achilles in a situation where he really did not have to make a challenge either. I mean, I think the, the Wilson was in the process of giving the ball away um, and he, you know, decided to go in studs up. He received yellow for it. Um, he also but, kicks out with his trailing foot. Yeah. And I don't really understand why he is losing his head in this situation. Like, I think we all, we famously kind of considered the fact that um, Romero has this mean streak or or reckless element to him where he's liable to end up in the book or end up off the pitch. But I don't understand where it came from in this game specifically. Uh, and in the Chelsea game too, actually, where we were leading at the time of his red card. It's not as if we're... It's one of these games where we're just not able to make things happen and we're losing. Maybe we gave up an unfortunate goal or something. No, I mean, in both of these situations, we've been winning the game and he's felt the need to kind of lose his cool or, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the psychological kind of idea is there or, or why he does that, but it is an issue. I mean, whenever he contains himself, he is one of the best center backs in the Premier League, but reliability is a thing. I mean, if he had if he had gotten a red for this, which he very easily could and probably should have, that's a five-game suspension uh, for a second straight red card for violent conduct or, or endangering an opponent. So um, then you're looking at missing eight games a season via suspension, and that's, I mean, that's a quarter of the season that you're unavailable due to your own actions, which I think is, is pretty... Um, unforgivable so don't really understand that one but i'm glad to have him back in the team hopefully he screws his head on straight for the next couple of games uh because it's important to have him in the team especially while vandeven is out until february is what it looks like so um yeah that's pretty much the the final things i had to say in terms of spurs i don't know if anyone else had some concluding thoughts on the matter but i had just a couple of points uh one touching on what you're talking about with with richarlison I had previously mentioned that <clears throat> I thought he would be dropped and I thought 
it was going to be um, Johnson's son and Kulisevsky, which obviously we were all complaining about Kulisevsky on the wing. I think, like you said, him in midfield is just a lot more balanced. Um, but what I had mentioned with Son and Johnson was that they both could play striker and they both could play winger. So it added just a bit of fluidity. And although I think Richarlison um, isn't as good at doing that as the other two, I think he still has the ability to. So it gives you a completely fluid front three, which I think is very interesting. Yeah. Um, just for all of them to have the capability to, dr- to drift out wide, put in a job, drift center, put in a job. Um, I think that's just a great asset to have. Um, the other thing, and I promise I have a I have a reason to bring this up. It's not to dog on y'all. Was that in the previous game y'all had set some some meaningless record for most games lost from winning positions in a row or something like that? Which yeah. I bring up because to do that and then to immediately play Newcastle, which is a much tougher fixture than West Ham, and completely smoke them and dominate them is just huge. I think it just shows the mental resilience of this side. I think under in previous seasons that that kind of um you know that losing streak can kind of build on itself which which it did in this case a bit but not as much as i think it would have previously i think you know that kind of idea that oh it doesn't matter if we lead we're going to lose the game anyway i think that would have got to the team in previous seasons but i think um the first and foremost thing that pastacoglu has done at this club is just make sure everybody is on the same page mentally um, and get the fans back as well. So, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a make my long rambling succinct. I think um, where previously y'all might've panicked. I think it's, it's a really great signs that y'all have just immediately responded to that. Yeah. And I think, the the interesting thing about that the what the actual statistic is is it's the the uh, first time in Premier League history that a team has gone one nil up in five uh, consecutive games and failed to win all of them. Um, I think the interesting thing is that we continue to go one nil up, <laughs> like the team doesn't get despondent about the fact that we continuously take the lead and then our immediate you know failed to win after that it's it's the fact that we're continuing to open games really well it's just more of closing them out and you know finishing things up which partly has to do with the fact that we only have like 15 available senior players and they're playing nearly every minute um so they they do tire out more than they would if we had had everyone available and we could make some you know timely substitutions to take the weight off a little bit but um, I think the fact that we have not seen any sign of the players being despondent um, is a definite testament to Postacoglu, like you say, and and a change from the previous previous uh, regimes as well. So we'll leave behind the Premier League there, I think, and move on to our brief pit stop in the championship where Leicester, uh, to Josh's actual kind of sadness, I suppose, decimated Plymouth. <laughs> um, it's because- not- I felt bad just because I really liked Plymouth. I've done a couple different career modes with him. I'm, so just like a soft spot for Plymouth, I was like excited for them to get promoted last season. But um, it, we looked really well in this game. It Everything kind of looked like it was coming together. We've had a rough few weeks. We've gotten wins, but it's just been a little rough at times. So very good to see a, a dominating win that we haven't really seen yet in the championship. Um, I do think wins like this are really important, especially just because it's it looks like it's going to be so tight with Ipswich. 
having extra goal difference, I think is going to make, could make a massive difference depending on how these games go with them um, during the winter, but just normal, but it looks like uh, Mariska's thought, everything looks like it's gluing a little bit more now, like games we would have lost for starting to win games that we should be dominating. It looks like we're going to be dominating. I think it's just a good, we're looking in a good spot leading up to two really important games against the Switch. And Josh, I wanted to point out, I I believe I'm correct in saying that this is Pats and Daka's first appearance of the season in the championship. Now, it is. I do think you know we are... what the status is in terms of his clause? Um, it's 75 games. I think he's like three away from, or I think he's two away now from getting into that. But it's 75 total games, and it's an extra five million. I think the club is just throwing caution to the wind and just saying we need to invest more into him because I think I think they didn't want to be overconfident on us making it back to the Premier League and I think being able to sell him would have um, been a smarter decision but I think they wanted to hold off on it. it would just be my thought process behind waiting and seeing how the first chunk of the season is going with how clear we are of leads I'd be fairly confident unless we have a absolute implication which is not rare for us sadly um we will be one of the automatic spots all right josh i'm gonna stick with you and uh give you time for jersey of the week which looks like you do have as briefly considering the fact of whether you would or not should ask before yes i actually remembered to get it so i have my uh ap no shield um jersey from cyprus so um famous for making the champions league group multiple times they beat real madrid once and that is their claim to fame in the champions league that's the jersey after the country of cyprus they have a couple cool national team kits but i've just never been able to find them their national team badge is very cool um but i said never been able to find one Apoel also in FIFA now, by the way, randomly in the rest of the world section. So, Ethan, album of the week. So in my in my emotional struggle to stay connected with Palace and feeling the results uh, a bit too personally, I found solace in the Smiths. The Queen is dead. The Queen being Crystal Palace. Uh, uh, and I got another Smiths album right there that I've I've had on here before, but. Uh, yeah, I like, I know the Smiths is like everyone, they hear that and they're like, oh, pretentious as fuck band, you know, people who listen to that are fucking wackos, but I don't care. I mean, I, I like him a lot. I, I know a lot of people shit on Morrissey because he's a wacko, but I like all the rest of the members too. And I think they play their instruments well. And uh, yeah, it just got good music for uh, when you're losing your mind, which is what I'm doing. Excellent stuff. Well, a big thanks to you all for tuning in for us for yet another week uh, across the Premier League. We hope you enjoyed our bit of double action this week. We will, of course, be across all things during the holiday season. We'll have to kind of work around everyone's holiday schedule. I know myself, I'm going to be in various different locations throughout the month of December, um, and I'm sure everyone else is kind of in the same boat. So we'll we'll have to uh, kind of schedule our episodes accordingly and we'll be sure to let everyone know on social media what the case is going to be on that but 
Um, I want to say a big thanks to the guys for joining me today. Reese, in spite of your mystery illness, you've powered through and put in a good performance. Yeah, thanks once again for uh, for hosting. And Ethan, thanks for uh, coming on and, and sharing your misery with us. <laughs> yeah, mentally ill compared to Reese's physically ill, but there you uh, go. it'll continue next week for, for sure. So, And Josh, always good to have you back. Yep. Thanks for hosting. All right, everyone. We hope you are staying safe, staying healthy, enjoying all things Premier League. We hope you have a wonderful Christmas, Hanukkah, holiday season, whatever it may be for you. Um, And it's a goodbye from us.